Okay, we are going to be in the book of 2 Kings this morning, so if you do want to turn there, it is um, about, looks like about a quarter of the way through the Bible. Um, there's First and Second Samuel, then there's First and Second Kings, and we are going to be in Second Kings looking at a really cool story. Um, and just if, I don't know if you're new or you're visiting, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to leave with one. They're in the back. There's a little cart that has those. Um, if you don't like the cool lime, lime green, there's some blue and white ones back there, but we would love for you to have a copy of the Word of God that you can, that you can have with you and that you can have at home, so I invite you to do that. Um, you know, we've been, we're continuing in our series on the names of God, and get that turned on, and it's been great. I don't know about for you, but it's been really good for me. Do you not feel like it's been really good to to learn his names. It's, it's just even when you sit in my seat and you get to, to look at a lot of scripture on this and look into this, I just, there, it's been so rich and I, it has really grounded me even more in God and his character and who he is. So um, it's, been, it's been great for me. Um, I do want to give thanks to Jason. He was in first service for preaching two weeks ago on Yahweh Nisi that the Lord is my banner, the one that we rally to. And Danny last week for doing El Shaddai, the God who is all powerful. Um, we had a really great conference, so it was good to, to be there, um, and just, we can, Jordan and I came back, and we've got 20 major changes we're going to make in the church in the next two weeks, so hold on. I'm just being funny. Uh, that's just a joke. I've heard sometimes people get worried when pastors go to conferences, because who knows what's going to get upended. Uh, one more thing. I really appreciate a, a number of people in this body were so critical with the Hesses and coming around them and spending time with them and loving them. And still in doing that, I am thankful for you guys who've done that. There were a lot of prayers going on. I am thankful for that. ask that you would continue. Um, just want to let you know that at the, the funeral, the memorial service we had, which I can't believe is two weeks ago tomorrow already, um, we, I was able to, um, to talk about the gospel of Jesus because Allie and the Hesses wanted me to, she would have wanted me and they wanted me to do that. And we had 225 people pick up a gospel track on the way out. 225. Can we like say, yay God for that? That's 225 souls of people who are hungry, who like are just, when they look at death, they're like, I do not know where I will be for eternity. I've been there. I know what that feels like. So can we be in prayer that God, that they would, that they would read that, that God would bring them to the point of faith in him. So um, this morning, we're going to look at uh, a new name of God. It is Yahweh Tzabaoth. Um, somebody afterwards came up. It's in the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Yad Saba, Lord Tzabaoth, his name is in there. Um, so if you, I love that hymn. So, but would you say, tzab, it's T-S, so it's Tsa. Would you say Tzabaoth with me? Tzabaoth, okay, good job. That name, um, Tzabaoth, that word um, comes from the Hebrew word, the root word Tzaba. Can you say Tzaba? A lot of English translations translated as host, but if you didn't grow up in church and you're not around churchy language, host is not a very common word other than we like hostess cupcakes, right? We don't use host very much. Um, the word sabah simply means a multitude. It's a multitude of things or a multitude of persons. Um, the word is frequently used when it's used. It frequently has military connotations, which you'll see in a second. This is the most used name of God in the whole Old Testament, 270 times this name is used for God. Um, it is used of fighting men in an army, 
Um, in 1 Samuel 7, 17:45, David said to Goliath, the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Tzabaoth, the God of the armies, the Tzabah of Israel, whom you have defied. It's not just used of fighting men and armies, it's also used of the multitude of angels. Um, in Psalm 103, 20, uh, you know what, I left out the psalm, that's okay, you just listen to this one. Psalm 103, 20 to 21. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, his tzabah, you his servants who do his will, the ones who do his will as bidding, the angels. So it's used of the multitude of angels. And it's also, um, and of those angels, by the way, Daniel 7.10 says there's 10,000 times 10,000. And if you know the Hebrew numbers and what those mean, 10 being like completeness, it's like saying, it's a way of saying they're just innumerable. They're too many to count. Angels of which we're told in Hebrews 1.14 that they, they serve those who have inherited salvation. So they, God beckons them and uses them. They don't just worship and serve Him, but to serve us, which is cool. Saba is also used of the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's what this one is, the sun, moon, and the stars. Isaiah 40, 26, it says, lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host, the Saba, one by one, and calls forth each one by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So, what does this name mean? Um, yeah, I was going to say, is that, that's like angels right now. They're ringing their bells like, yeah, that's awesome, like you mentioned us. Uh, <laughs> we had Nellie over this week, and she had a, we have a cowbell she was playing with, and I thought I was hearing the cowbell for a second. Um, anyways, if you don't hear that, maybe you're like, Garen is crazy. What's he talking about? I just hear a cowbell, but it doesn't matter. This is the hardest name of God to translate because there's so much packed into it. If you look at multiple translations, you're going to see it translated different ways. In a minute, I'm going to give you what I prefer, especially for today. But um, I do need to kind of give you an overview that this name, it really emphasizes the power and the might of God and of his sovereign rule over all things. That's a core concept in this name. Whether it is angels, I mean, armies, angels, or star, Yahweh Tzabaoth is Lord of the multitudes. He is the great king in the whole universe, whether seen or unseen, it is his. That's the big idea that's behind this name. I want to show you some Old Testament scripture that uses his name in Psalm 24:10. Who is he, this king of glory? Yahweh Tzabaoth, he is the king of glory. In Amos 4:13, he who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. Yahweh Elohim Tzabaoth is his name. So the Lord I am, Yahweh Elohim is just the word for God. Tzabaoth is his name. Isaiah 37, 16, Yahweh Tzabaoth, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, which are the angels, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth, over all the kingdoms of the earth. And then Isaiah 44, 6, this is what the Lord says, this is what the I am says, Israel's king and redeemer, Yahweh Tzabaoth, I am the first and the last, apart from me there is no God. So do you see in that the emphasis on his kingship and his rule and his sovereignty, um, this name expresses his supremacy over all of creation, especially over heaven's armies, especially over heaven's armies. And so with that in mind, I'm going to go with the New Living Translation, which translates this, I am Lord of heaven's armies. That's the one I prefer and the one I'm going to go with this morning. It has that whole idea of his sovereignty of all creation, 
but that's the one I'm going to go with, and it really fits the story really well. This name is so unique in the Old Testament. Um, this name alone does not appear in the, in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It doesn't appear in Joshua, Judges, or Ruth. It shows up for the first time in 1 Samuel. It's kind of a latecomer to the game, so to speak. But again, it's the most used name in the Old Testament. It's used some in the Psalms, but it is used a ton in the prophets, especially the prophets of the exile in Babylon and the post-exile when they come back from Babylon and things still aren't really quite right. It's used 80 times by Jeremiah, 50 times in Zechariah, which is only a book of 12 or 13 chapters, 25 times in Malachi, it's used 14 times in the short book of Haggai, and it's Isaiah's favorite name for God. I had several scripture from Isaiah. Um, and within, and so it's a, it's a really profound name. I really love it. And with all these names, we are asking the question, do we see these embodied in Jesus? And we do. We do see in Jesus as Yahweh Tzabaoth, as the Lord who has taken on human flesh. He has total command over the spiritual forces of darkness. We see him multiple times liberating people who are possessed by demonic powers, setting them free. We see him showing control. We sang about it over the, the natural world, the waves of the sea, that he can calm the storm, make the sea immediately like, like glass, which by itself, just that is a miracle. In Matthew 26, 53, when he's arrested and Peter cuts off the ear of the servant, Jesus says to him, do you not know that I could call down 12 legions of angels, 60,000 is what that would be. Like that, I could call down 60,000 angels. So he is Yahweh Tzabaoth. I want to share one more really cool thing um, that I found this week. And this is, this is actually meaningful. It's not just a cool thing. Sometimes it may be like, that's a cool thing, but anyways. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the, new, it's the Old Testament that Paul used in the Mediterranean world with the churches. The way they translate it, Yahweh Tzabaoth is really unique. It is in Greek, kurios, which means Lord, kurios, panta krator. So can you say that with me? That's kind of a tongue twister, but it's kurios, panta krator. Ready? Kurios, panta krator. Pan, pan means all. Kratos has dominion, might, dominion, and power. So it means the one with dominion and power over all things. Now here's why I'm sharing that with you. Because again, it gives you that sense of the sovereignty of his kingship. But there's something else really cool. That Greek that is used almost exclusively in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, where God, we are told, will finally win the ultimate battle as Lord of the universe, and he will dethrone all powers, whether they are human or angels, and he will be the one at the end who wins the ultimate victory. So I think it's significant that that name is used in Revelation. And so what I learned from all this is that, especially the, that use in Revelation is the final and ultimate victory belongs to Yahweh Tzabaoth. His is the ultimate victory. And so as a follower of Jesus, I do not live for victory, but I live from victory, and that's a big difference. I don't live for victory, I live from victory because I worship Yahweh Tzabaoth. And it's his victory, it's not mine. We'll get to that in a minute. A victory that was won in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and a victory that will be fully realized in the future when Jesus returns as Lord. So each week we're trying to do a story that illustrates these names of God. And so this week we are in 2 Kings chapter 6. Hopefully you're there on your phone or with your Bible. It's a really cool story that shows us as, as shows him as Yahweh Tzabaoth, who is the Lord of heaven's armies. Um, and in this story, what I love about this story is you're going to see an unveiling. It's like God pulls back the curtain 
and shows us a deeper spiritual reality that's going on around us all the time that we don't see with our physical eyes. So I love this story because it gives us a picture of himself as Yahweh Tzabaoth. So 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 8, in verse 8, where it says, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. I'm not going to interrupt this too much, but that's a map. There's um, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Aram is to the northeast, and it's where modern-day Syria is. Damascus was the capital. So if you th- anytime you see Aram in the Bible, it's Syria, essentially, I mean, when we think of our modern nation. So the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elijah warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? He's like, okay, who's the snitch? Who's letting out the intel of where we're going, right? So verse 9, the man of God, um, sorry, Verse 12, none of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So parents, who needs a child monitor? Who needs military surveillance? If you worship Yahweh Tzavah, the Lord who sees and knows all, right? So look at verse 13. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. I want that guy. So the report came back, he is in Dothan, and I want to show you on the map where Dothan is. It's about 10 miles north of the capital of Samaria. Um, it's, it's relatively close, and what's really important about that city is that it lay at a really strategic place. It was at the head of the Jezreel Valley. You can see on the map, do you see on the map how that huge valley is just north of it? And here's a picture of, um, of Dothan, the kind of hill, and you see the valley laying behind it. That valley was super, super significant. When Pat and I were in Israel, we were at Megiddo, which is also, which is just um, west of Dothan, but it's also on a hilltop overlooking that valley. It's a huge valley. There were major highways for them, highways that went through there, a lot of trade. It was a really significant place. So Dothan's in a really significant place. So verse 14, then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Like, in, if I were to put it in modern English, it's like, we are toast, right? Verse 16, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha then told them, this is really hilarious, by the way, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me, and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the capital city of Samaria, a walled city. Verse 20, after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. And they probably thought, we are toast, right? So funny. Verse 21, when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? What do you think he wants to do? Sounds like a little kid, right? Can I do it? Can I do it? 
But verse 22, do not, a very strong word in the Hebrew, do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory and this is the word of the Lord. Is that not a great story? I want to delve a little more into that. The key verse to this story is verse 17. Look at verse 17. It's the key verse. Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw. And I want you to know the spiritual life is all about having spiritual eyes and spiritual perception. It's all about seeing beyond just the physical and the things that are obvious to us. That's what the spiritual life is about. That's the key, I think, to living victoriously. And I love this story because it gives us a glimpse. It pulls back the curtains and says there's more going on than you see. And I want you to have the spiritual eyes to see that. And it's not true, just true of them. It's true of all of us at all times. It's a really great story. I learned seven things from this story. Seven things that I want to hit. And here they are. Number one. That there is a battle. There is a battle. Verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And this was more than just a war between men and military armies. There was a spiritual battle also going on behind it. It was a battle between God and the spiritual forces of darkness. And I want you to know that we are in a spiritual battle. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says this. He says, be sober and be watchful because the lion, like a roaring like the, the devil, like a roaring lion, is roaming about seeking whom he may devour. I want you to know we are in a spiritual battle, right? There is an unseen realm that wasn't just at work there, but that's work, or work around us. You know, most people live with a very accurate awareness of this unseen world and of this reality. If you get outside of the West into places where a lot of missionaries are, they very much know that there is this malevolent spiritual world that's daily interacting with their lives. And sadly, we in the West, we have lost to a large degree touch with this reality, and so we experience here what missionaries call the excluded middle. That we tend to think primarily of, well, there's God up there and there's me down here and that's kind of all that's going on. But there's a lot more that's going on in that middle. That there are spiritual forces in this intermediary world, uh, malevolent forces. And there's pitch battle going on for the souls of men and for creation. Um, but we easily, I think, we forget that. In the Lord of the Rings, and by the way, if I reference the Lord of the Rings, it isn't just because it's cool or it's a great movie. Because it was written by a person who followed Jesus, and it's full, it's full of um, a biblical worldview. I love so much about the Lord of the Rings. And in the Lord of the Rings, um, there is a dark Lord who's seeking control of Middle Earth, and a number of the inhabitants of Middle Earth have no clue what's happening. The hobbits in the Shire are totally clueless that there's a dark battle going on. The Ents, who should know better, don't know that there's a dark battle going on. And I think that sometimes we live that way as if there's not a spiritual battle raging um, around us. That's why I think this name, Yahweh Tabaoth, and this story are so important because they help call our attention to this reality, right? To this reality. So let us take that spiritual realm seriously. That's, that's an important thing I learned from this story. But I also need to add this, if you don't mind, because I believe in living between paradoxes or the sides of things. That's the best place to be. But anyway, that's a sermon at some point. Let us also be careful of the extreme of blaming or putting, becoming so inordinately focused on that spiritual world that everything is the result of that. Does that make sense? You can also go to the extreme where you take it too seriously. Most of us need to hear, we need to take it seriously. 
but there's probably a few. I fully agree with C.S. Lewis on this, who in the screw tape letter said there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence or to just not think about them much. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So just, we know there's a battle. We just got to be careful we don't run crazy with it, okay? The second thing I learned is this, that these forces are powerful. Look at verse 14. The text calls this army a strong force. I want you to know it's even more so in the spiritual world. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers and the authorities and against the powers of the dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I want you to know the spiritual powers of evil, they are powerful. Okay, they're powerful. But nevertheless, I learn a third thing from this story, and it's this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that. You know, when the servant saw the army surrounding them, he said in verse 15, oh no, my Lord, what are we going to do? Like, we're dead, is essentially what he thought. And then in verse 16, Elisha says, don't be afraid. That's his response. If he were a Brit, I think he would have said, keep calm, carry on, right? Um, so again, from the perspective, I think of that servant, the battle was unwinnable. They were trapped. They were going to be defeated. It was certain. There was no way out. But Elisha knew better. And he knew better because of the fourth thing I learned from this. Because he knew that we serve Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. Is that not good news? Is that not good news? In verse 17, Elisha prayed, Open his lies, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I mean, who else would you want on your side but Yahweh Tzabaoth, right? Man, that's who I want on my side. So he, he is there. He's in control. And fifth, I learned from this text that he is the superior force. His is the superior force. Before God opened the servant's eyes, Elisha said in verse 16, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha knew that God commands a countless number of angel armies and of angels. Um, and he knew what that reality was. But I don't know about you, I tend to be more like the servant than like Elisha. When I encounter difficulties in life and I do the math in my head, um, here's, here's what the equation looks like to me. Whatever against me is greater than me. That's my math I'm working with all the time. And that was the servant's math. But that's not Elisha's math. He went to the Christian school and took math from Pat in fifth and sixth grade. Now, he learned his math at the feet of God. And here's what Elisha knew, that me plus God is greater than whatever stands against me. Is that not powerful? Is that not true? And even more than that, he knew that two plus God plus heaven's armies was greater than any of the human armies or any of the spiritual armies that were arrayed against them. Amen? Amen. Is that not good news? Sixth thing I learned from this story is that ultimately it's his battle to fight. It's his. Verse 18, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike the army, this army with blindness. So the Lord, so he, the Lord, struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. This is God's battle, okay? It's his. In, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, two nations invaded Israel. And Jehoshaphat, 
as a result of that, he acknowledged in prayer this to God in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. You rule over the, all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. And then in verse 20, the prophet Jehaziel replies to that prayer. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army that you see, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. It is God's. So the battle is his. Praise him for that. Ooh, I, just, I love this story and I love this name. There's, it's just so rich. Okay, but all those things doesn't mean we do nothing, okay? We do have a part to play. In Ephesians 6, 10, and 11, that powerful scripture on spiritual warfare, Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord and to put on the full armor of God. So it's, like, it's not that we do nothing. So in this text, I also learn about our role in the spiritual battle. And it is, primary, it is about our primary weapons, and I find them in verses 16 to 18 and 20 to 23. And this is really important to me, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 4, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we fight with a different kind of weapon. And I find four weapons in this story. Four weapons. First, a humble trusting in him and dependence upon him. A humble trusting in him and dependence upon him. That's why Elisha says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In the words of David in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. So we trust in him and we depend on him. In the words of Ecclesiastes 9, 11, Solomon said, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. And then Solomon writes in Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory rests with the Lord. So my first weapon is, is in great humility, a posture of humility, I trust in him and I depend on him. And in that humility, it's a humility, the second weapon is grounded in the truth. The truth of God's self-revelation of himself as Yahweh Tzavoth, among many other names. And Elisha knew that truth. That's why he could say to him in verse 16, those who are with us are more than those who are with him, because he knew this reality about God. He stood on the truth, the truth that as Yahweh Tzavoth, God is the sovereign ruler over the whole universe. That all authority and all power in the universe, it belongs to him and him alone. That he rules over the armies of heaven. That he can at any time send those armies on the aid of his children. And that the ultimate victory is his. Elijah was fully convinced of that. I think if he would have had the whole Bible, he would have quoted to him that day the words of Paul in Romans 8, 31 and 37. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There is no God like this. So you got to be grounded in truth. It's also humility, I think, rooted in prayer. Three times Elijah prays in this text, verses 17, 18, and 20. Three times. Ian Bounds said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men and women of prayer. Zechariah knew this in Zechariah 4, 6. He says, this is what Yahweh Tzabaoth says. It is not by might nor by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's why in that classic text, Ephesians 6 of Paul on the spiritual battle, he ends that by saying, be in prayer in the spirit 
on all occasions with all kinds of prayer. He calls us to prayer in the middle of the battle. And finally, our fourth weapon, it's a humility that shows itself in a sacrificial agape love for all, even our enemies, because Jesus calls us to love and bless our enemies, right? That's in verses 21 to 23. I just love this. The king of Israel is like, should I kill him? Should I kill him? Can I, can I, can I, can I? And Elisha says, no, by no means. Instead, let's make them a great feast. We're going to feed them and we're going to send them home with full stomachs. Is that not powerful? I just love that part of the story. So here's what I learned from this story. Because it's not just a story about Elisha and his servant. It's a story that essentially, again, it's pulling back. It's showing me a reality that I don't always remember. And so this is my story and it's actually your story, okay? And here's what I learned at the summary is there is a spiritual battle. The spiritual forces, they are powerful. But don't be afraid because we serve Yahweh Tzavoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. That's who we serve. And his is the superior force. And ultimately, it's his battle to fight. It's not mine. And our primary weapons, a humble trusting in him and dependence upon him. One that's grounded in the truth, that's rooted in prayer. And that shows itself in agape love for all. Those are the spiritual weapons I bring to the party. And because of all that, we can, in the words of Paul, found in Ephesians 6, 10, and 14, because of all that, we can be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, and we can stand firm. We can stand firm. Amen? Do you not love this name? Do you not love this story? Do you not need to hear this? Okay, I want to add one more thing to me that's really important. Yes, we serve Yahweh Tzavoth, the Lord of Heaven's armies. But we must be careful of a kind of spiritual triumphalism that is very prevalent today. A triumphalism that I think presumes upon God and expects a spiritual win. And if, so if somebody's listening to this later, just listening, I'm doing win in air quotations, okay? Is expecting a spiritual win all the time. It is common to hear Old Testament passages quoted and used, things like Isaiah 54, 17, that every weapon against you that's formed will not stand for those things to be used of us today. And it's easy for us in the West where we live a life of ease to be able to, to, to quote that and to say that. But I want to tell you, 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 you go say that to the persecuted church, right? People who are in prison who are losing their life, that hey, every single spiritual weapon against you will not stand because their reality is a different reality. And a lot of verses in the Old Testament that we use, I think, triumphalistically in relation to all of this are scripture that were given to Israel in a very unique context. Because when God gave Israel the Old Covenant, he told them, if you are loyal to me and if you are faithful to me, you will have none of these diseases, you will have no famine, and no army will be successful against you. That was his promise to them. And I just can't carte blanche take those promises full force to me. I think there's some spiritual reality under it that I can claim, okay? But I cannot full force take that and apply that to myself. Um, I think it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that we live in this time between the times, this time between the times, between the decisive victory of Jesus on the cross and his final victory upon his return. We live in this age right now where there's, it's this hybrid, where the corruption of the world is still here, but yet the kingdom of God has broken into our world, and both things are happening. It's what theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. That's what our spiritual life is like. I'm living in the already of the kingdom, but I'm also living in the not yet, that it's not fully here, okay? 
Yes, Jesus secured the ultimate defeat of Satan on the cross, but it will not be fully realized until he comes again, okay? That is why in the the book of Revelation, a book written to persecuted Christians, in chapter 12, verse 12, he says this, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Watch out, he's mad, okay? That's the reality we're living in. So when we think of Yahweh Tzavoth, I want us to remember the core idea is the sovereignty of God, that he is the ruler, king of the whole universe. And it is up to him when he brings his angel armies into force to use them and when he doesn't. And let me give you two examples from the world of missions. Um, John G. Mason and his wife went to the New Hebrides, some of the first missionaries there in the 1800s. The tribe was not receptive to them. And the tribal elders one night gathered and decided they would attack and kill the missionaries. So the next day, they sur- that, the next evening, they surrounded the compound with their weapons. And then and the Masons saw that, and they were in prayer that God would protect and deliver them. And sometime throughout the night, they dispersed, and they went home, and nothing happened. About a year later, the chief of that tribal group became a follower of Jesus, and many other people became followers, and he said, I have to ask you, like, what what tipped you, what made you decide to become a follower of Jesus? And he said, that night when we gathered, there was an army of soldiers of light who had weapons between us and the compound, and we knew at that time that the power, whoever was with you, was greater than whoever we served. And that's what tipped us to the point of eventually accepting Christ, okay? We love those stories, right? But then there's the story of these five gentlemen who went to, to reach the Waldani Indians in Ecuador back in the 1960s. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, probably the two most famous. Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, and Pete Fleming, who fly a plane, encounter a tribe that was very, um, very violent in the Amazon, and how they met them, landed on a beach by the river over a few days, thought they had good interaction, went back one day, and then that... The warriors of that tribe, including women, attacked them, killed all five of them, chopped up their bodies like with hatchets and stuff. It was a very violent end that those five missionaries felt. It ended up the wives of two of those, um, Nate Saint's wife, I forgot her name, and then um, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, after their grief and mourning, decided they were committed to the souls of that tribe and they went back to that, they went into that tribe to share the good news of Jesus. Eventually, people came to the Lord, and one of the key things that happened in their coming to the Lord is they found out something they did not know, that after they had killed the five missionaries, all of the warriors and the women who were with them said that these beings of light showed up around them and were singing songs. Ask me later about the story of the music. I got to tell you, it's too good. They did not sing and have music in their culture. And so, Elizabeth Elliot and Mrs. Saint had um, at some point requested from a church some things to make things feel more like at home, and they requested an old record player, the crank kind, and no, I did not grow up with that. My parents had that, okay? And they brought it with some albums, and the first day they played um, one of the, the LPs, it caught the attention of the tribe, and the warriors, the warrior elders all came in, and they said, what is that? They had never heard music before, and they said, the last time we heard that was when we killed your husbands, and those, those beings of light showed up, and that's the sound they made. They were worshiping. Now, here's why I'm telling you the two stories. 
for one set of missionaries, the angel army showed up before the attack and protected them because God knew that's what that tribe needed to come to faith in him. But for those five, the angel army showed up after they were killed and revealed themselves because that tribe needed to see that to come to faith in Christ. Do you see that? There's a big difference in the two. And so that's why we have to be very careful about how we are being true triumphalistic and applying this because God is God alone and he is the sovereign in control of his armies. Peter, who was rescued by an angel in Acts chapter 12 from prison, 30 years later was crucified upside down. Paul, who wrote Romans 8, who talked about that we're more than conquerors, was beheaded in Rome. Jesus Christ himself, the captain of the Lord's armies, could have called 60,000 angels to his side to save him, and he didn't because he had bigger fish to fry. He was going to the cross for you and for me. And so I just want you to see that God is the sovereign Lord, that he commands his armies according to his will and a larger plan, a plan that many times I do not understand. And that's why I love the story of Joshua 5. He's about ready to attack um, Jericho, and a dude shows up with a sword. Joshua doesn't know that that's Yahweh Tzabaoth. It's the angel of the Lord, that it's, it's Jesus in an appearance who comes, who's the captain of the armies, we're told, the Lord's army. And Joshua says to him, not knowing that at first, he says, are you with us or are you with them? And his reply is, neither. You don't determine who I attack, when I attack, where I attack. That's for me. And then Joshua realizes where he's at, and he falls and covers his face, and then the angel of the Lord says, by the way, you're on holy ground. You ought to take your shoes off. I'm the same guy Moses met, okay? So, all of that is to say, all of that's to say, I cannot, God is not at my beck and call on when he puts those forces for me, or not, right? That's all I'm trying to say. But we live knowing that as we learned last week, that he is El Shaddai, he is God all-powerful, there's nothing impossible for him. We live knowing him as Yahweh Tzabaoth, that's who we serve and worship, knowing that he is the sovereign Lord of all of the universe and the Lord of heaven's armies. But we do, don't do so triumphalistically, but in a posture of humility, much like Daniel's friends who when they were going to be thrown in the fire for not worshiping the image, they said God is able to save us if he wants, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. Okay? That's our posture before Yahweh Tzavah. So my summary is this, to truly trust, and the worship team can come on out. I know they're biting at the bit. They can come out. To truly trust in Yahweh Tzavah is to trust not just in his power, but is to trust in his plan. Is to trust in his plan. Being fully convinced, I am fully convinced, he will have the eventual ultimate victory, and he, I will share in that victory with him at that time. And in the meantime, I'm just very humble with him, and I, I know there's a battle, and I fight it with the weapons that he's given me, spiritual weapons. So I'm curious, is there anybody here this morning, anybody here who is facing to you what appears to be an insurmountable obstacle? Because I'm sure there's somebody like that who feels overwhelmed and powerless in their circumstances. There's something going on in your life, a battle you're fighting, and to you it seems unwinnable. You feel outnumbered and trapped and maybe are even losing hope of any kind of victory. I just want you to know that you're not alone. Okay, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of heaven's armies, is with you. So run to him. 
In the words of Solomon in Proverbs 18.10, the righteous, the, sorry, sorry, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. His name, his character, Yahweh Tabak is a strong tower. The righteous run to him and they are safe. So would you stand with me? Is it not appropriate to worship Yahweh Tzabaoth right now? To worship him? Can we, can we do that together? Let's sing this last song as a declaration. The battle belongs to the Lord. Maybe we won't see victory today, but we know in the end who is victorious. Serve knows only 
God's people said, isn't that powerful, right? I will not back down from any giants because I know who's going to win in the end. That's Yahweh Tzavoth. So that's who we stand with. I've been trying to end all these sermons with prayer. Can we end with prayer? I feel like it's appropriate. So we're going to have it on the screen. Would you please join with me? And we're doing, every time we're doing adoration, we're offering thanksgiving, we do confession, and then we do supplication, okay? This is a pattern of our prayer. So would you join me? Yahweh Tzavoth, you truly are Lord of all. You sovereignly reign over all of creation, things on earth as well as things in heaven, both seen and unseen. And you are the commander of heaven's armies. Who is like you, full of glory and might? I praise you. Thank you that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that you have won the decisive victory over Satan. Thank you that you are for me and that in you I am more than a conqueror. No matter how great the powers against me, you are greater still. With you at my side, I have nothing to fear. Forgive me, though you are great and powerful and armies tremble in your presence. I often live my life in fear, failing to trust you. I also confess that I often take things into my own hands and try to fight spiritual battles in my wisdom and strength. So, Lord, please fight my battles for me. They are many and they are strong. Help me to trust that you are doing more on my behalf than I will ever know. Keep me, the ones I love, and our church safe from the evil one. I know that the ultimate victory will finally be won at Jesus' return. In the meantime, help me to trust in your sovereign rule of all things. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the captain of the Lord's army. We pray in his name. And can God's people all say, amen. Amen. All right, 12, you are sent to live in this reality that you serve Yahweh Tzavoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. Um, So live in that reality. And if you're interested on the way out, we're just going to have a video playing, but mingle, do whatever you want. But God's blessing and peace to all of you.